You're tuned into 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by biophysicist Trevor Dolanayats from the Department of Biophysics. I thought you were in integrative biology because I see you in my building all the mm-hmm. time, but um, you're not. You're in a totally different department. Right. And, th- and since it's not a department, um, we're just a program and a rather small program. We always get adopted by whatever department we're physically located in. You know, that's often the building we work in. Okay, that's great. So, that's, so it makes sense. You know, I mean, that's it. You're invited. Yeah. You have yeah. the access. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Exactly. Perfect. Um, well, let's first, let's enlighten the audience or, you know, maybe they, they probably know everything there is to know about biophysics already. But just in case they don't, what what is biophysics? Yeah, and um, I'll you know I'll start by saying I'm an atypical biophysicist. Um, so a lot of people in the biophysics graduate program study um, nanoscale physical processes. So these are the mechanics that allow for protein unfurling, that allow for certain things being pulled through ion channels. So these are these very small physical forces that happen on a um, an intercellular level, and you know they have a few experimental techniques for studying this um, these very, very small things where they actually will, you know, trap a protein between two beads that are held by the, the by the actual um, mechanical force that is um, exerted by a beam of light. Um, so <laughs> a beam of light doesn't have a lot of force, so we're talking very small forces here. And um, then they can pull back and create little springs. And so, you know, that's, that's a lot of what goes on in biophysics at Berkeley, you know, and I think that biophysics at different schools is very different. It's a broad term. Um, I've heard it said that biophysics is whatever someone who calls himself a biophysicist is doing. Well, that gives you some, <laughs> some leeway, right? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I study whole organisms that are on the scale of microns. So these are things that are maybe a fifth or a tenth the, um, the length of a millimeter. And um, so these are closer to macroscopic. Um, I can actually make out my study organism with, with the naked eye. It looks like a tiny little black dot. And it's a uh, powdery mildew. So I guess I study fungal biomechanics. Okay. (laughs) You gave us a lot to think about. So (laughs) first, my mind is first grappling. You know, in high school, we had like physics class and we had biology class. And I guess I never really considered this intersection of the two disciplines. But you're telling me that little tiny things that we would consider biology, like in our cells or little Mm -hmm. microorganisms, they're subject to the same physical laws as stars and planets and things Precisely, like that? yeah. Okay, and so we yep. don't just want to know about the universe. We want to know about what's inside. Yep, and we, you know, we still think about the, the things in, in terms of their the springiness, um, in terms of how much inertia they have, um, and how much mass they have, what their velocity is. So we're still looking at the same physical um, quantities, but just on a, a biological scale. And yeah, you said things. microns. Microns. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So. That's 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 the uh, basically the size scale I work at. Um, I often think about that in terms of you know what the what some other people in the biophysics program they maybe work on nanometers. If if you're a neuroscientist, maybe you work on the the scale of centimeters within you know neural connections in the brain. And then if you work with single cell organisms um, or um, organisms that only have a few cells, then you're working on the scale of microns. So it's kind of fun to think about where what size scale your research. Um, you know, fits in. Okay, so fungal biomechanics, and and you, right. you mentioned to me earlier this was actually like a pipe dream of yours was to mm-hmm. make it into fungal biomechanics. Is where does that come from? Where as a little child? 
No, no, not 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 at all. Actually, really. I mean, I'd gotten interested in in fungus um, when I had uh, lived overseas because I had done some. I had done foreign exchange in the Czech Republic, and then I lived there for four years out of high school, teaching English abroad. And and I it was a big part of their culture. People would go out and and collect mushrooms, forage for them, and eat them. And I was like, oh, this is just so cool. There was such such variation in these this organism and such color and and they were delicious and and then I had the chance to take the California macrofungi identification class offered here at Berkeley as an undergraduate and then I took um, the other class taught by the same professors which was the actual evolution ecology and just biology of fungi and I remember when I was taking that class and we were on one of our field trips up in Mendocino picking chanterelles and porcinis and and bluets and all this delicious stuff. I remember talking to one of the graduate students then, and this again was when I was an undergraduate, and I was like, oh, you know, I, here I am, I'm a physics major, you know, I'm, I'm finishing up soon, and I would love to be able to use my physics to study fungi. So, sure enough, um, once I got into the biophysics program, I realized there is a going to be, or might be an opportunity to do that. And, uh, and I found an advisor that was amenable to me studying fungal biomechanics, and then everything has just gone from there. So there's like this running joke in biology that, um, you know, the ideal situation is to be able to eat your study organism. Yeah. <laughs> so you've actually managed to accomplish that. Then. <laughs> Maybe not your, can you eat the, yeah. what, what kind of mildew is it again? Um, I, I study a, a mildew, um, and I only really specify it to the genus, which is phy, uh, or phylactinia. And um, it, no, I don't, I don't eat the mildew. But, um, you know, I think that I... I wasn't sure what what question I was going to ask with, within um, you know the physics of fungi you know because there's there's a lot of questions open questions and interesting questions and um, and so there was there's times where I thought oh maybe I am going to get a you know look at actual you know traditional mushrooms that are edible and wouldn't that be fun right you know but it, I ended up um, coming across some just really fascinating questions about the aerodynamics and um, some basically some paradoxes about how mildew get off. Of their their host plant in the first place, some some physical processes, these open ended questions, and so I had to deviate away from the edible fungi. Oh, but it's such just a shame. Still been fun, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, you know, maybe we can still go mushroom picking sometime. Yeah, I, well, especially if we get actually get some rain. It's been it, has, yeah. it hasn't been a great uh, great couple of last seasons for uh, mushroom picking. It's true. I've been doing my dance in the backyard, but yeah. it's not working yet. So. You said the aerodynamic properties of this mildew. Can you just briefly walk us through the life cycle of your your genus? Yeah, absolutely. And and the life cycle is is kind of a big part of the where where my questions have come from and my hypotheses. And basically, there's this this fungus. It's a mildew, so it's a plant pathogen, and it targets um, a deciduous. Um, bushes and trees. And so it has, it has a life cycle where it needs to infect the leaf, live on the leaf, um, spread its mycelium, basically its vegetative state, its roots almost, throughout the leaf, and then produce some sort of airborne propagule or airborne spore that's going to then cause more infection throughout the summer, but then also that's going to then somehow allow for reinfection when the leaves have fallen off. Because the, the, the mushroom, the, this infection, this pathogen, is not... Uh, syst- uh, systemic, so it's only living really on the surface of the leaf, with and so drawing some um, some energy and nutrients out of the cells. But it, it doesn't live within the the, um, the plant, so it needs a way to get back on budding leaves the next spring. And so the question is, how how does it do that? And so it needs to somehow survive the winter 
and then get back to that budding leaf for reinfection. And um, in order to do that, it needs the, this one particular part of its life cycle, this, which is called the chasmothesia. It needs to land in a certain orientation, hence the aerodynamic properties. So you have this strong selection pressure. You have this organism that in its life cycle, it has to land a certain way because otherwise later on it won't be able to basically orient itself and then get on to the leaf and cause that, you know, the budding leaf again in the spring. And so basically these airborne spores, they look like shuttlecocks. They, they really do. Like, like from badminton. Exactly, like from badminton. Because what, what does a badminton shuttlecock do? It, it flies through the air. And it, it always turns in the same orientation because oh, yeah. it's, got, it's got the high drag um, skirt and then it's got you know, the, basically the spherical or um, spheroid part that's the ball. But that high drag skirt means that the high drag skirt will always be pointing downstream. And that same principle seems to hold true with these, these spores I study. But they're, they're about 200 times smaller in terms of one linear dimension. So they're, I mean, their volume then is that many thousand times smaller. So very different physics, but apparently the same principles. So just for clarification, I mean, I, I definitely know what you're talking about, but some of the audience might be a little bit confused about the terminology okay. in terms of when you say that they have to orient themselves a certain way, Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about it like that to make it easier to understand, but really, you know, they're not thinking, they're not orienting yeah. themselves. It's just literally um, a selective. Pre- it's by I don't want to call it chance, but yeah. the selective pressures mean that only certain orientations are able to continue in their life cycle. Yeah, so I'll get into that a little bit. I, it's it's almost like I I don't want to say um, you know give um, anyone unnecessary details, but basically what I mean is that they exactly that they they don't have any you know, neurological control. The the fungus doesn't think, but they they have to land that certain way because the, okay, so let's go back to the analogy of thinking of it as a shuttlecock. So the ball part of the shuttlecock, it actually has a bunch of little tubes inside of it. And those tubes contain individual spores. So I, the thing, the whole thing that's airborne is, is, like I said, it's called a chasmothesia. And basically, that sphere full of tubes splits open along the equator, and this sometime during the winter splits open, opens up kind of like two sides of a walnut, if you imagine. So this is this thing is splitting open along its equator, and then those tubes have to face up. So if you imagine then if that if that sphere that splits along its equator landed on its side, so now now the equator is you know is oriented up then when the thing would split, the tubes wouldn't be facing up. And I know this is, this is a lot of visualization to do just with, without you know, seeing a picture, but the whole point is that you, you have to have it land in a certain way so that the, the next stage in the life cycle is pointing against gravity and then can spread, can spread its individual spores from those tubes. I hope that I hope that helps. No, definitely. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, you're listening to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla, and this is The Graduates. Today, I'm joined by Trevor Dolanayats in the program of biophysics. So speaking of visualizations and visualizing things, can you sort of give us an image of what your laboratory looks like uh, with all these, uh, you called it experimental biology Right. Yeah, I yeah, I, I absolutely. I do I do a lot of experiments um which is which is great fun. 
And this this time of the year, I have I can work with my my live organism. Basically, the mildew is producing these resting spores, these chasmothecia, and so I collect them from the leaves of plants and I I I drop them. I drop them so I can film them with a high-speed camera at 600 film 600 frames per second. That allows me to see them actually turning in the air. So I see them doing this behavior. I'm able then to talk about how quickly they do it, what's their, you know, angular velocity, what is their terminal velocity once they have finished rotating, if there's some sort of translational velocity, how does that correlate to different parameters? So I'm able to take all these videos of these individual spores falling cuz I basically film through a microscope and I watch them fall. So, you know, that's kind of one thing. Imagine a microscope set up and I'm, I'm filming things falling. And then I have a big wind tunnel. Again, I have a high-speed camera and I put leaves in the wind tunnel and I actually film the rate. Um, and so basically the accelerations and the amplitudes of leaf fluttering, that gives me um, a lot of important physical qualities um, that I'm looking for about exactly the world that these, um, these chasmothecia, what they experience in terms of what fluid flows do they see, what um, velocity gradients do they experience, experience along the length of their bodies, uh, how much inertial force would I expect them to experience, all these sort of these characteristics that may have a, um, you know, a big effect on this you know, important stage in their life cycle. Um, so you know, wind tunnel with leaves, microscope. Um, I have a, um, another microscope set up where I'm actually, I have a little tiny cantilever so basically, I just have a little tiny piece of glass sticking sticking out that I put a little bit of glue on the end, and then I bring that thing in with a little micro manipulator. Again, micron. So I'm moving, I'm moving the, this little piece of glass one, one one micron at a time, and I actually stick it to individual spores, and then I pull on them, and then that way I'm able to measure um, by recording with a, with video the deflection of my little glass cantilever how how much they stick onto the leaf. That way I can directly measure their adhesive force. So you know these these are all these these fun experiments that I get to do, uh, where I'm working directly with the organism, and um, I work I work a great deal with undergraduates um, on this work. You know both with the analysis of the data and running all the experiments. I actually have um, a team of eight uh, undergraduates through the the uh, UAP program that are um, that are helping me out and are just a great asset. So that's that's a big part of the lab, um, and what I do you know in it. But then I also do physical modeling. Should, so, I, should yeah. I tell the audience about that? About yeah, physical tell us, modeling? Yeah. Tell us what it is first. Yeah, so physical modeling is this idea that if you, you basically you have a, a value that we call the Reynolds number, which is just the ratio of inertial forces, so that's inertial forces in the, in the numerator, to viscous forces in the denominator. So it's just the ratio of forces, so this is a dimensionless or, or rather unitless value called the Reynolds number. And what it allows you to do is if you are able to set up an experiment where you match that ratio of inertial forces to viscous forces to the same ratio that the real organism would see, then you can, you can basically say, well, you're going you're to be experiencing the same physical world. Um, and then you're able to scale up the forces and, and make some calculations. So in order to do that, in order to simulate the world of these very small spores, again, you know, sub-millimeter spores, I build models that are, are a few centimeters long, and I put those models in about a six-foot-long, a foot-and-a-half-wide tank of mineral oil. See, the mineral oil, since it's more viscous than water and certainly more viscous than air, is simulating the world that the spores live in. 
So basically, you want to look at these things on a scale that's a little just easier to work with. So you build up the ratio to a larger model and then a more viscous uh, material. Yeah. So by by changing the viscosity and changing the velocity and the size, I'm, I'm changing all these parameters but matching the um, the important characteristics, so I can still I can then match the forces, for example. And what's um, mineral oil? Just really quickly. Mineral oil, I guess, is it's used for it has a number of uses, but um, I I don't know how it's produced exactly. I just work with it, and um, when I when I need more viscous fluids, um, I actually work with caro syrup um, and water. So I use a twenty four to one ratio of caro syrup to water, which is about three times more viscous than mineral oil. If I was to use all pure caro syrup, it'd actually be too viscous. But it's you, it's important to use uh, the right uh, the right right fluid. Of course, the problem with caro syrup is that it can it, things can start to grow in it, so um, it can kind of start to get a little uh, a little funky with time. So it, it adds adds an extra extra element to the experiment. But so with with this tank, um, basically, I'm able to do a lot of neat experiments. You know, I, I build I build these models. Um, I was able to to design the models with um, 3D modeling software and print them, so I was able to get them to be nice and symmetric, which, you know, maybe the real organism isn't necessarily symmetric, but it's a great place to start. And then I I was able to attach these models to a force and torque transducer, so I'm able to get really precise measurements that I certainly couldn't get with such a small organism. I couldn't directly measure it. I mentioned the experiment where I'm pulling with a cantilever, but you know, pulling with a cantilever and the the precision of that that kind of measurement compared to building a model where I have three axes of force and three axes of torque, it's just a world of difference. So the model allows for so much more precision and such I can really get a you know a really great idea of what what exactly the um the organism experiences in terms of, you know, body forces and all that. And then meanwhile, so I have this this big tank, right, full of mineral oil, and the and the model is attached to this transducer, like I mentioned. And then I, I have a laser that I have, 300 milliwatt laser, and I'm shine I shine the laser through a prism, so I'm then I'm making a sheet of laser light. And I orient that sheet of laser light so it cuts through one axis of the model. And it could be any axis, you know, you can imagine it cutting along the length of the of so imagine again a badminton birdie. So imagine a sheet of light cutting along, you know, maybe um one vertical slice of it, so it's cutting through part of the sphere and then up the up the skirt. Or alternatively, I could cut it. I could cut a horizontal slice right through the skirt. But where, depending on where I cut my my sheet of laser light, I then actually film that sheet. And what that sheet is really doing is it's illuminating a bunch of tiny little glass beads. They're these 11 micron silver coated glass beads that are suspended in the mineral oil. And these glass beads are more or less neutrally buoyant, so they just kind of sit in the mineral oil, not sinking, not not floating upwards. And they're all the light of the lasers bouncing off them. And so then I'm filming, I you know, then I focus my camera, I focus my camera right on that sheet of laser light, and that allows me to see exactly what the flow's doing. And that that can tell me things about where there's high pressure, where there's high shear, where there's low pressure, where there's no shear. And then I, I can get this very full picture of the fluid dynamics and how how that affects forces and torques. And so in this in this model, there's nothing that's moving the mineral oil or moving the model, right? These are just like the natural fluid dynamics that you just see. Oh, I no, there is. There is movement. So in the tank, all this is attached to a cart. And then the cart is attached to a motor, and I pull the cart down the length of the tank. And I can, I can pull it at variable velocities. 
So I'm glad you asked. So that that's basically what I'm doing is I'm simulating the the flow that the the spore would experience when it was when it's attached to the leaf. So you know I, sometimes I'll actually attach the model to a, um, a sheet of glass that is attached to the cart, so everything's getting pulled together. So that's that's my leaf model. Or sometimes um, I don't use the glass, and that way I'm simulating the free fall. So depending on what question I'm asking, I have you know slightly different setups, but everything gets pulled down the tank. So yeah. this is kind of like when we see when I see that image of like an airplane wing and there's different color exactly. flow. Yep. Okay. Exactly, exactly. So like they're 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 scaling down the wing to make it more manageable, right? So instead of using a full size wing, they use a smaller wing, but they match the fluid flow. And in my case, I'm scaling up. So it's it, but the same exact idea that they do um, in uh, in aeronautics, exactly. So did these protocols exist, or did you have to like come up with these different air tunnels and um, mineral oil containers? I sometimes have some things to, <laughs> to base my experiments off of, um, some ideas that other people have done. But a lot of times it's, it's just kind of uh, designing the experiment. I always uh, tell my students, I'm like, yeah, you know, these are, these are all experiments that we're going to design on, on the fly and see if they work. I'm never using a, a well-defined or perfected um, or guaranteed to work protocol. I'm always just kind of trying to piece together um, concepts or um, techniques that that might work in you know in theory or, or worked for something very different and just trying to apply them to to my questions uh, which is a lot of fun um, it really is to to have that that um, that sort of freedom of, of um, experimentation and uh, and exploration you're tuned into 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley you're listening to the graduates. Uh, the interview talk show where we speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their research. My name is Tesla Munson, and today I'm joined by Trevor Dolanayats from Biophysics. And uh, so, why I I don't I don't want to sound crude, but like why like why should we care about this? Why should we care about mildew? Wait, first, why does someone in your field care about this? And then, why should us like people who don't know anything care about this? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that people in my field care about it because uh, there's, there's a lot of unanswered questions. And just, just that desire to, uh, to fill in the blanks, I think, is, uh, is great motivation. So there's a kind of a, a group of researchers out there that refer to the pollen paradox, which is basically this idea that pollen grains that are distributed by wind, which are obviously ubiquitous and distributed frequently, well, the mechanism that allows them to get blown off of the stamen in the first place is um, not basically undocumented and not understood. So just to have a glaring hole in, in such a, a, you know, a common phenomenon is, is kind of great motivation for people in the field. Um, and you know, so that, that's basically it. You know? And then also I think it's really neat. Uh, one thing I, I say as a selling point is I say, well, look, it's the world's smallest shuttlecock. And I say that with, with actually some, some seriousness because if it was much smaller, it would actually the, – the fluid situation would change so substantially that the, the shape wouldn't matter anymore. If once things become small enough, the flow becomes what's called laminar and things like um, the, the exact fluid conditions that would allow for self-orientation or auto-rotation would, can't exist. So basically this, this spore has evolved to operate – at the basically the the smallest size that it can, and still achieve that kind of auto rotation. Um, so just to see a natural natural phenomenon where that that sweet spot's been discovered through random mutation selection is is fascinating and neat. 
But then, you know, to address your question about why people outside of the field might care, is is there's some actually some real um, economical um, uh, relevance here because. The species I study has a very closely related cousin that affects the uh, the wine industry. It actually uh, infects grapes, and so right there, you know, you have a major cash crop. Powdery mildews make it so the um, the the vineyards don't produce as many grapes. Um, the because it you know they're just kind of sickly. They're not doing as much photosynthesis. Their leaves don't get as big, and so you know just kind of understanding some you know some key aspects um, can have a, a real effect. And uh, you know we we all care about the the wine industry maybe we like to drink wine or we like to to see a flourishing industry so that that can be a a motivation i think <laughs> no definitely yeah. and you know i i just thought of something i should have asked you at the beginning but i didn't can you just tell us what the difference is between a fungus and a plant i i don't know why i didn't ask you this it's but i think it's an important point here okay I mean, I, the the major difference between um, a fungus and a plant, I mean, it has to do with the uh, what the exact composition of the cell membrane is one is one big one. There is um, the the life cycle in the with the um, the nucleus um, and the presence of the presence of having multiple nucleus within within the cell is a major um, a major defining um, characteristic of that separates plants from fungi. You know, there's, I'm trying, these are like the fundamental ones. I mean, there's obviously some more sort of um, macroscopic examples, right? I mean, fungi in general, they, I mean, they, they're not photosynthetic, I think is one important one. Maybe I, I should have mentioned right away. Um, so, you know, they're, they're filling a different role. Um, so they usually have a symbiotic relationship or a, um, a parasitic relationship with plants. But I think those are the, the major ones. I don't know if I'm, I, I think I am missing at least two or three. Um, I'm sure my uh, my mycology professors um, would be uh, upset that I but don't remember not, everything. <laughs> they're not plants, though. That's basically what I'm trying right, to say. They're, right. They're a different kingdom of life. Exactly. Um, and, it, and it becomes more complicated than that. And the people that really end up studying, especially small fungi, so the, these microfungi that aren't, that don't have big fruiting bodies, that don't have caps or anything. Um, you you quickly fall into situations where you, you you're talking about fungal-like organisms. So, for example, the downy mildews, which um, have similar life cycles to powdery mildews, well, they're, they're oomycetes, and oomycetes aren't true fungi. They're actually a separate kingdom of life. Um, so then, when you start dividing up kingdoms of life, one of the things you actually look at is the number of tails. Uh, like in the number of fl- like flagellations they have, um, because uh, interestingly enough, some true fungi actually have little a uh, um, zoo spores which are swimming, you know, with so they basically they have a flagellum with mitochondria, not unlike um, you know human sperm, and um, so they actually have this very animal like behavior. Um, not all fungi have that. Some uh, most most fungi just have spores and not zoo spores. But it goes to show um, that, and this is actually true in terms of just the um, the evolution of life, that animals and fungi split off much more recently in in terms of the evolution evolutionary history than plants and fungi, or and then especially obviously bacteria and anything else. Um, so it's been a pretty recent split. So we um, that's what fungi and humans actually share a lot in common, which is why it's so much harder to kill them when they get on your body. Um, really, it's you can really you can wipe out a bacterial infection pretty easily, but fungal infections can be really tenacious, and that's because their their cells aren't so different from our cells, so it's hard not to kill our own cells and kill theirs. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Also, so you mentioned at one point you have like 
you have like eight undergrads under, you know, working for you right now. Mm-hmm. So what about other students? How do students get involved in this sort of thing? Do they just approach a professor, um, you know, ask or find someone who's interested in this sort of thing? Yeah, no, great question. Um, I mean, the way the way we have um, been getting people in the lab is that we have um, a long running tradition of posting um, descriptions of our research on the um, the URAP um, websites, under, undergraduate research and apprenticeship, I believe is what it stands for, URAP, and basically there you know we post a description of what what is the current research is, so that's whatever um, graduate students or whatever um, the the um, instructor or advisor our advisor's research is specifically, and then we we have a period at the beginning of the semester where we're interviewing um, students and seeing who's a good fit. And uh, we're always always looking for for new students to to work on a number of projects, and so that's that's been a, a real avenue that uh, that we we use in order to get um, undergraduates in the lab, which has just been great because um, a lot of times you know they'll join the lab and work on a a well defined project for the first semester, and then often um, motivated undergraduates will go on and do their do their own work and we. Um, um, put posters together and present at scientific um, meetings and, and be co-authors and papers that get published within our lab. Um, and by the way, this is the lab of uh, Dr. Mimi Cole. So um, this is that's my advisor. And um, so we we have yeah we just a um, a good a good situation I think where um, we have an established tradition. And then um, in addition to that, I uh, I work with the physics department because I was a physics physics undergrad at the uh, at this school at Berkeley. And uh, and so you know I have those ties with the physics department, and I've been um, I worked on and uh, helped co-design um, a course that is um, basic that basically prepares physics transfer students. So these are junior transfer students that are coming from the community college, and they're coming to Berkeley, and it's a big change. Um, it was something I did myself back in two thousand eight, and and they one of the biggest things I think that when you come from a community college to a school like Berkeley is that. You know, you're you're kind of used to really working on getting A's, and you know that is important here. But um, more important is getting involved with research because this is a big research institution, and so that's that's one thing that this course that I helped design um, is trying to prepare these transfer students for. And so that's been a place where I've actually have been able to get some people to join the lab as well. Um, so I was I said, you know, hey, listen, we're doing biophysics over here. We're doing biomechanics. We're asking, you know, we're applying a lot of the physics that, that you see in your mechanics classes. Um, we may not be applying, you know, quantum mechanics, but uh, definitely um, some thermodynamics, some fluid dynamics, and uh, a lot of mechanics. So um, so that, that's been a, a great, a great uh, source for, for finding students who are interested as well. And is that class going to be taught in the spring here at Berkeley? It's, it's taught every fall. So um, basically because we're getting the, uh, the students that are transferring in because fall is the typical time to, uh, to transfer and not, not in spring. So, um, so it's where this is the, the, second, the second year it's being taught as a co-venture between um, the, uh, the Compass program, which is a great student-run program that helps uh, physics students um, and is um, student, you know, like I said, student-run. And then the um, NERDS, which is uh, part of the professional development program and is just a, a umbrella resource that helps um, in all forms of professional development for, for undergraduates, whether that's helping with you know, conferences and you know, getting a poster at a conference or just going to a conference, study spaces, printing, tutoring, um, paid summer research, paid research throughout the year. So all these things are opportunities. Um, and then NERDS and the physics department and Compass have actually had helped uh, pay for this course. Um, so it's, uh, it's a chance to, uh, to get those, those physics uh, transfer students um, involved in research right away. 
So plenty of time to sign up for next fall then. Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I think we're just about out of time here on The Graduates. Do you have any final words you really want to get across to the audience? Well, um, I, you know, I just uh, want you want to say that when you're uh, when you're out, you know, walking around um, Berkeley campus or you know around the hills, and you know, you see all all the leaves of all the plants, all the trees, um, all the bushes. Um, take a second to look at leaves. You know, look at them closely. Look at the bottom of leaves. Think about look at the things that live on them. You might see some really fascinating stuff. No, that's that's, yeah, that's, that's my, always my great advice. advice. Yeah. Uh, just going outside and uh, yeah, yeah, taking yeah. a look. Thank you so much, Trevor. Uh, you've been in, tuned in to 90.7 FM. You're still tuned in to 90.7 FM, KLX Berkeley. But this has been yet another fantastic episode of The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their research. My name is Tesla Munson. Today I've been joined by biophysicist Trevor Dolanayats. Thank you so much, Trevor, for coming on the show today. Thank you, Tesla. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, anytime. And uh, that's it for us today. Stay tuned. There will be another episode of The Graduates two weeks from today, Tuesday at 9 a.m. But until then, keep your dial fixed here at 90.7 FM, KALX, Berkeley.